0: Everyone, let's take out our Bibles together. Mark chapter 3 today, we're going to be starting in verse 20. Mark 3, 20 through 30. That's our text this morning. Mark 3, 20 through 30. On December 20th, 1792, the General Assembly of the State of Kentucky approved an act to create the state seal which you can find on the middle of the state flag today. It's that circle right in the middle of the state flag. They wanted two men embracing and expressing unity, two very different men. They wanted a, a frontiersman and a statesman embracing with the motto, united we stand, divided we fall. That state motto comes from a popular song by a man named John Dickinson that he wrote in 1769. A song called Liberty Song. Uh, It was a song that Kentucky's first governor, Isaac Shelby, was particularly fond of. He really liked one stanza, which read, uh, or which was sung, then join in hand, brave Americans all, by uniting we stand, by dividing we fall. United we stand, divided we fall. Now in a very similar vein... Later on, many years later, on June 16, 1858, a senatorial candidate in Illinois with strong ties to Kentucky named Abraham Lincoln gave a speech that would come to be known for a memorable line. Speaking of the division in the country on the issue of slavery, Abraham Lincoln said a house divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Now, Lincoln knew his Bible, and he swiped that phrase from the Lord Jesus. And it happens, it occurs in the very passage that we are in today. And so with that, I want to show you this passage. I want to show you the united and divided idea where it comes from, but also we will transition from that into a very controversial uh, and a very confusing often topic from scripture as well. So all that to say let's go to our text. Chapter 3, Mark chapter 3 verse 20 down to verse 30. This is God's word. Mark writes, "Then he, Jesus, went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind." And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, wouldn't you know it, this passage neatly divides up into three parts, and so we're going to look at three parts today, number one being an annoying inconvenience, number two I'm calling an illogical accusation, and then finally we're going to look at an unforgivable sin. An annoying inconvenience, an illogical accusation, an unforgivable sin. We begin with the first, an annoying inconvenience, and we find that in verses 20 and 21. Verses 20 and 21, when they went home, the crowd gathered again because of Jesus, because of who he is and what he was doing, what they had heard, and they couldn't even eat their dinner. And they went out to to grab him. Presumably he's like right outside the house, but they're getting so interrupted they can't even eat together. And they go out to grab him saying, he's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. We can't even eat. You see, they're, they're starting to, his family, they're starting to experience what it means to have Jesus in your life. They're starting to experience what it means when you have Jesus in your life. He's inconveniencing them. Jesus is inconveniencing his family. They're probably thinking things like, why can't you just keep ministry out there? Why can't you keep your ministry out there? We get it, you've got a calling, but this is our home. This is our family. He's inconveniencing them. And he's embarrassing them, it seems. That's the sense we get. Not only they're inconvenienced, but they're embarrassed. He's out of his mind. They were getting all of this attention and not in a good way, right? The, the religious leaders of that day are not only suspicious of Jesus, but they know the family that Jesus comes from. And so think about what it was like for Jesus' family to show up at synagogue or to walk around the community and being looked at suspiciously by those who were the religious leaders, those who were influential, John 7, verse 5 says not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. His brothers, his own brothers didn't believe in him. Presumably, we, we think his mom and dad probably did. Scripture tells us Jesus had sisters as well. But we can imagine the entire family being inconvenienced, the entire family being embarrassed, even perhaps at times mom and dad, because of what's going on. And this is what it means to have Jesus in your life sometimes. And so I ask the question to to every one of us today. Let's all ask the question of ourselves. Does Jesus inconvenience you? Does Jesus inconvenience you? Do you find yourself thinking or saying things like, "I've, I've got things to do. I've got my work. I've got my life. And I'll give time to Jesus if I can. But if it comes to work versus Jesus, work wins. How many of us, if we're bluntly honest with ourselves, dangerously honest, can we be dangerously honest with ourselves this morning inside of our own minds? How many of us think exactly like that? If it comes to work versus Jesus, so i got to pay the bills. i got to make money. i got to get the work done. Work wins. Or if it comes to, to recreation versus Jesus, recreation wins. If it comes to sports versus Jesus, sports wins. How many of us find ourselves when we're with someone who, who really follows Jesus? They're really into Jesus. How many of us find ourselves thinking or saying, can't, can't we just talk about something else? Can't we just move on from this for a little bit? Or how many of us find ourselves thinking on a Saturday or a Sunday morning, can't we just skip church this week? What's the big deal, really? Can we just skip for a week? Or, you know what? Can't you just not be such a prude? Everyone else is watching that show. Everyone else is watching that stuff. It's not a big deal, right? Does Jesus inconvenience you? That's the question. Or, let's ask the second. Does Jesus embarrass you? Does Jesus embarrass you? Is faith for you a private thing? Because many times... For many people, especially in places in the country like like where we live, faith is a private thing. We don't speak about that out in public. That's a private thing. It's kind of like politics, right? We don't speak about that out in public. Is faith a private thing? Sure, we go to church on Sundays, but we don't talk about this stuff Monday through Saturday. We don't talk about it at work. We don't talk about it at home. Let's just keep church stuff at church. If you call yourself a Christian, let me ask you this. When was the last time you spoke to someone about Jesus? When was the last time? If we call ourselves Christians, when was the last time we spoke to someone about Jesus? Could it be that we are ashamed of him? Could it be that we are ashamed of him in our hearts? In Mark 8.38, Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Understand the weight of what Jesus is saying there. Understand the implication. He is saying, If you are ashamed of me, when I come on judgment day, I will be ashamed of you before God. In other words, Matthew 7, I don't know you. Are we ashamed of him? Does he embarrass us? And the real question underneath all of these, these are are questions on one level, but when we get down to a deeper level, we, we really need to ask, do we love Jesus more than we love ourselves? That's the real question. Do I love myself more than I love Jesus? Because you see, if Jesus is an inconvenience, well, then that that just means my plans, my comfort, my routine matters more to me than he does. If Jesus is an inconvenience, then that stuff matters more to me than him. Or if Jesus is embarrassing, well, all that means is my reputation among others, my approval among others matters more to me than he does. So really, it's do I love myself more than I love Jesus. Because Jesus tells us if we love anything more than him, we are not worthy of him. He says in his word, if we do not deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him, we cannot be his disciple. He says if we hold our lives back from him, we will lose them for all eternity. And so the real question is, do we love ourselves more than we love Jesus? We see it with Jesus' family. This is what it means when Jesus starts encroaching on life. We have to make a decision. Are we going to resist that or embrace it? And so that is his annoying inconvenience, so to speak. But now we move on to verses 22 and following, where we find the Pharisees and the scribes bringing an illogical accusation against him. An illogical accusation. Look at verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying... He's possessed by Beelzebul. And then they were saying, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. You keep reading, you you, you learn Beelzebul there is just another word for Satan, the prince of demons. And so it's by Satan's power they're accusing. By Satan's power he's doing this. Their hearts are so hard against Jesus that even when he's driving out demons and freeing people from demonic oppression, they have to find some way to discount it, because they see what's going on, they see what he's doing, and they can't say it's fake, they know it's not fake, it's real, it's real power, real things are happening here spiritually, so we can't just say he's faking, that's obviously not the case, and we can't admit he has the power of God, because then we'd be admitting that, that we're wrong and he's in the right, and so oh, oh, we can accuse him of having the power of Satan, that's what we'll do. This power is real, so it must be the power of Satan. Their hearts are so hardened against him that they accuse him of doing these things by the power of Satan. And they end up accusing him of something so illogical it doesn't even make sense. And Jesus says, wait a second, how can Satan cast out Satan? Satan's not divided against himself. Satan is not working against himself. That's not what's going on here. That doesn't even make sense. If he was working against himself, Jesus says, his kingdom couldn't stand. If he was working against himself, his kingdom couldn't stand. It would be coming to an end. Ah, but it is coming to an end. It's illogical, yes. But notice how Jesus rolls into verse 27. Verse 27. You might have read this in your devotions over the years and been confused as to what this might mean. Verse 27, Jesus says... But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. You know what Jesus is saying here? Satan is the strong man. Satan's the strong man. He's strong. Don't get that wrong. Don't be overconfident here. Satan is strong. We we have to understand how formidable an enemy we have against us. He is strong. He's stronger than any one of us. But what Jesus is saying here is, even though he's strong, I can bind him, and then I can come up in his house and take whatever I want. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that his life and ministry, his death and resurrection, it was a frontal assault on Satan and his kingdom, and there's nothing that Satan can do about it. He's like, okay, you know pharisees scribes understand satan's not divided against himself if he was his kingdom couldn't stand but understand this his kingdom's not going to stand because i can come in and i can bind him and i can go up in his house and take whatever i want and he can't do a thing about it understand this brothers and sisters there is a holy trash talking that jesus is doing a holy trash talking that we can even appropriate for ourselves not in a prideful way, not in a sinful way, right? When we watch sports and we see all of these guys puff out their chest and beat on their chest and get up in everybody's face, it's a a prideful thing. But there is a holy and righteous way to boast in the Lord. There is a holy and righteous way to be on the side of Satan. Not that we are, I mean, on the side of Jesus, And against Satan, not that we are are coming up against Satan and, and saying, Oh, myself, in my own power, in my own strength, I have confidence against you. No, absolutely not. Satan is stronger and smarter than every single one of us. But Jesus has the power to bind him and come up in his house and take whatever he wants. And Satan can't do a thing about it. Revelation 20 tells us Jesus has done just that. With his death and his resurrection. He has bound Satan. And now Jesus is plundering Satan's house. And over and over again. All over the world. For thousands of years. Jesus has been plundering Satan's house. Bringing people out of Satan's kingdom. And into his. And Satan cannot stop it. He cannot do anything about it. And it is good and right. To get fired up about this. If you are on the side of Jesus. If you are on his side it's not because of us it's because of him and his power but he is plundering Satan's house and there's nothing Satan can do about it God has Satan and the forces of evil right where he wants them under his thumb he is the creator of the universe he can unmake all of them anytime he wants to sometimes it seems like the forces of evil out in this world are extremely powerful does it not? And sometimes it seems like there's nothing we can do about it. But God is fine. God is not worried. God is on his throne. And it is exactly the way he wants it to be. And when God decides that it's over for Satan and his demons, it will be over. And it won't be hard for God. And we're on his side, brothers and sisters. We are on his side. There is nothing that Satan can do about it. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In Colossians 2.15, it says, he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And in Hebrews 2.14-15, through 15, it says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so what Jesus is saying is Satan is the strong man. Jesus alone is able to bind him and come in and plunder his house. And there's nothing Satan can do about it. But we move on now to the end of our passage. The unforgivable sin. The part that many of us are are wondering about. Verse 28 through 30. Jesus says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This has vexed Christians for centuries. The unforgivable sin. It's vexed Christians for centuries. And it has vexed Bible scholars and professors and pastors alike. Some things, brothers and sisters, some things in the Bible aren't as clear as we would like. They just aren't. There are some things in the Bible that just aren't as clear as we would like, and this is one of them. We don't have a nice, tidy explanation for how to understand this. And that is why, for centuries, it has vexed and confused even the smartest of God's children. And so the question is, what do we do when we come across something in Scripture like that? That's hard to understand. That's not very clear. What do we do? We trust God. We trust God. Why? Well, because we believe two things. Number one, we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. Amen? We believe that everything in the Bible, every word in this Bible, is God's word. It's all from God. God inspired the Bible through the Holy Spirit, and every word is His. So we believe that. And on top of that, we believe that when God speaks, it's always perfect. When God speaks, it's always right. He never makes a mistake. He never says anything that's false. When God speaks, it's perfect and true every time. And so if everything in the Bible is from God, and if everything that is from God is perfect and true, we trust him even when we don't understand. Does that make sense? We trust him even when we don't understand because he's God and we're not. He tells us to expect this in places like Isaiah 55. He says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how much higher my ways and my thoughts are than yours. And so when we're dealing with God, we should expect to be confused at times, right? If you are never confused, if you are never perplexed when you're dealing with God... I would suggest to you, you have not encountered the true God. He's God. We're human beings. We are such a small part of his creation. When it comes to our capacity to understand things and our wisdom, I mean, it's like the difference between a human being and the brain power of an ant. And if you think about that and multiply it by 100, you you'd begin to be getting close to the difference between the mind of the Lord and the mind of a human being, Right? He's God. We should expect to be confused at times. And when we are, the fault is not with him. The fault is with us. We don't have enough understanding, but we trust him. We trust him because all his words are perfect and true and good. Now, having said that, having said that, I still want to ask the question, and you're all still asking it anyway, what is the unforgivable sin? What is it? How can I make sure I don't do it? Because this has not just confused people for centuries. This idea, this doctrine, this teaching has brought on some very severe anxiety for a number of believers. Have I committed the unforgivable sin? In my first ministry, I had a teenager who struggled mightily with anxiety, who for a time was calling me day and night, scared that he had committed the unforgivable sin. Just worried. All the time that he had somehow done this was maybe, maybe it was something I thought, maybe it was something that accidentally came out of my mouth one time, but just almost could not assure him that he hadn't committed at some point, somewhere along his life, the unforgivable sin. And so what is the unforgivable sin? Well, number one, we need to ask, what does the text tell us? When we've got a question about scripture, we need to stop and ask, what does the text actually say? Let's not speculate. Let's let's ask, what does it actually say? Let's get our information from what God gives us. Now, verse 30 is really helpful here. Verse 30, because after verse 29, where Jesus says, whoever blasphemes against the Spirit, the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30 says, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Four, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. That four is really important there because that means saying that Jesus has an unclean spirit, that has something to do with what the unforgivable sin is, right? They were saying Jesus had an unclean spirit. They were calling the Holy Spirit demonic. They were saying that the Holy Spirit's work was the work of Satan. And so whatever this sin is, it has to do something with that. It has to be something that has to do with calling the Holy Spirit Satan, saying that his work is satanic, right? But having said that, you don't get much more than that in this passage. You don't get much more than that. And so I'm going to tell you what I think, right? I'm going to tell you what I think. This is not in the text. This is my best theological guess from what I know about the Bible and what I've studied on this subject. Be good Bible students, and everything that any preacher or Bible teacher says, you test it against Scripture, right? You hold fast to what is good and what accords with sound doctrine, and you throw away what doesn't, right? So this is my best theologically informed guess on what this is. It seems that whatever this sin is, it must be the result of a heart that has been hardened against Christ and against the work of God. It seems that you must have a heart that has been hardened over time against Christ and against the work of God to commit this unforgivable sin. I do not think that this sin can be committed by someone accidentally. I think that's impossible, that it can't be committed accidentally. I do not think God would ever refuse to forgive someone for an accidental slip of the tongue or a stray thought. I don't think that's what this is at all. I think it's clearly something that you must do deliberately and it must be done out of a heart that has been hardened against God and against the work of Christ. Now, the best work I've ever come across on this is from my seminary professor, Dr. Jack Cottrell, in his book on the Holy Spirit, Power From On High. I want to read uh, a couple quotes from there because I think it's helpful. I think these will be helpful to you and he says it better than I could. He says in that book, it, the, the unforgivable sin, it can be committed only in the context of an attitude of unbelief and open hostility toward Jesus. That accords with what the Pharisees were doing, what the scribes were doing, only in the context of an attitude of unbelief and open hostility toward Jesus. He writes, it can be committed only by someone who refuses to accept Jesus as the divine Messiah and who is deliberately trying to prevent others from accepting Jesus by openly attacking and opposing him. That accords with what's going on in our passage here. He says, When one knows that Jesus' Messiahship has been fully confirmed and authenticated by the power of the Holy Spirit, but continues to reject Christ anyway. Interesting addition there. And then finally, and this kind of ties it all up, he writes, It's a deliberate rejection of the Holy Spirit's testimony to Jesus while at the same time knowing it is true. While at the same time knowing it's true. And so, and I I believe every single one of those things that I just read from his book there, this is someone who in their heart knows the truth, suppresses it, and makes a willing decision to harden their heart against it, and then actively works to oppose Christ by attributing the work of the Spirit through him to the work of Satan and his demons. That is my best theological guess as to what this really is. Someone who knows the truth, they suppress it, they make a willing decision to harden their heart against it, and then they actively work to oppose Christ by attributing the work of the Spirit through him to the work of Satan and his demons. That seems to be the unforgivable sin. Now, this is not as clear in the Bible as we would like, We've got to remember that. and So we're trying to make a theologically educated guess here, but it does seem clear to me that if you are a believer, you cannot commit the unforgivable sin. If you're a believer, you cannot commit this. You have to have a heart that has been hardened against Christ and against God. You have to be actively working to oppose Christ and the work of the Spirit through Him. You cannot accidentally commit this sin. Now, For all that we can't say confidently on this. Here's something you can say confidently. And here is one of the big reasons why I think this is in the Bible. Why God gave this to us as something to think about. Beware of hardening your heart against the Lord. Beware of hardening your heart against the Lord. Hear and feel this warning today. Beware of saying, I know this stuff is true and I feel the pull of the Holy Spirit, but I'm going to shove that down and turn away from it. Beware of doing that. Why? Because you may cross a line that you can never come back from. You may cross a line that you can never come back from. You may find later in your life that you cannot repent that your heart is too hard. Brothers and sisters, this happens to people. There are people on their deathbed who still refuse Christ because their heart has been hardened against him so long and so many times that they can't. It can't be be melted. It's so hardened. You can't break through that ice. And they might have thought, "I'll, I'll give My life to the Lord on my deathbed. I'll do it later. I want to enjoy the pleasures of sin while I can. And and then when it comes time, I'll do it. Yes, people can give their life to Christ on their deathbed. And yes, that is something that is legitimate. Thief on the cross, last moment of his life. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. That is real, right? God extends the offer of forgiveness up to the very last moment. But do not presume. That you can just put this off. Now, typically, from a preacher like me, you're hearing something like, don't put it off because you never know when you're going to die, right? Don't put it off because you never know when Jesus is going to come back. That's all true. But what I'm saying to you today is, don't put it off. Because even if you are blessed with a a, a deathbed experience, even if you are blessed with a long life, you may get to that point and you can't repent. Because your heart is too hard. If you know the truth and you feel the pull of the Holy Spirit now and you shove it down and you say no to it and you say no, no later. Beware because you might be crossing a line that you can never come back from. If you make a willing decision to resist him now, even though you know the truth, you may not be able to turn back later. And so the question is, do you want to risk that? Are you willing to take that risk? Now, I want to end with a verse that I think most of us have probably just skipped right over, and we shouldn't. In our our fascination with the unforgivable sin, we tend to skip right over Jesus' words in verse 28. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, he does say, save one, right? Save one, the unforgivable sin but feel the force and the weight feel the the absolutely massive life changing implication of what he's saying in verse 28 all sin can be forgiven anything that you have ever done whatever you have done no matter how much you have think you walked away from the lord no matter how much you have think how much you think you've ruined any kind of faith, any kind of heart that the Lord could forgive, you are not past the forgiveness of God. Your sin is not so horrible that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cleanse him. The blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse any and all sin. All sin can be forgiven. All blasphemies can be forgiven. No matter what you have done to, to spit in the face of the Lord, you can have forgiveness. If you turn to Christ, you can have forgiveness if you come to Jesus, the one who paid for all sins on the cross through his death. You can have forgiveness today. Do you want it? Do you want to be right with God today? Are you right with God? Ask yourself that today. Am I right with God today? some of us can sit here and honestly say, yes, I am right with God. In our Sunday school class this morning, we studied First, First, uh, Romans sorry Romans, 8, chapter, 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. I'm right with God. I'm forgiven of my sins. Even though I am a sinner, even though I've got sin in my very recent past, I'm forgiven. Some of us can honestly say that. Can you? Can you honestly say that? Are you in Christ today? Have you turned to the Lord? Have you given your life to Christ? Are you living in the light of his death and resurrection? Has his blood cleansed you of all of your sins? Because if not, that can happen today. It can happen today. That's where I want to leave us. Right now, before we have our invitation time, I want to give a few moments for silent, reflective prayer. We do this each week. Uh, we ask during this time that you go to the Lord and respond in whatever way that you need to. There, there will be some at times who need to respond to the Lord's word on their hearts in a public way and come forward. But every single one of us, every single week, we all need to respond to the Lord in our hearts and so we give this time of silent prayer individually so that you can do that and then after we pray for a few moments we're going to come back and then we'll have a an invitation time where those who need to respond publicly can do so let's pray